please open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. The passage will also be on the screen behind me, as well as the monitors in front of you. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who will be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. You may be seated. Of being a 17-year-old 
to a mom of a beautiful little girl. I couldn't even begin to tell you my thought process. Those of you who don't know, I didn't know I was pregnant till the day I had her. I was a mom. Not really my plan, but clearly God's plan. I remember holding her, thinking, what am I going to do with this little baby? I pushed through, not perfectly, but I still did. What I I did what I had to do with lots of help from my family and friends. I was a mom to her. At 23, I got pregnant and married my wonderful husband. I instantly was a wife and a stay-at-home mom. Before our first year anniversary, I was expecting our third daughter. By our fifth anniversary, I was expecting our, our fourth daughter. Throughout the years, God saw us through the good, the bad, and the ugly. When it came to our marriage, he was drawing us both closer to him. It's hard to admit this, but even in that time that God was shaping both me and him, I struggled with thinking, is this what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life? Just a wife and a mom. About a year and a half ago, I was given the chance to go back to a place that held my heart for so many years. I got to return to Haiti. Yes, I finally thought this is going to, <clears throat> going to open so many things up. My mind instantly went to maybe I can get my husband to go one day, and he'll fall in love with it, and we'll move there as a family. <laughs> told you I was a dreamer. <laughs> my love for Haiti hadn't changed. I left just knowing I would be back. Well, God had other plans. I found out I was pregnant with our fifth daughter eight months later. I was excited, but in the back of my head, I thought, there goes that dream again. This pregnancy was a lot harder than the rest. I was tired, crabby, and all around unhappy. The struggle to love my husband and children and be content in where God had me was boiling over. I remember calling my husband so upset, crying because I was missing out on a trip to Haiti. It was a dark and ugly moment, but it was the beginning of God's working on my heart. I felt the hurt in my husband's voice as he told me that I needed to see like they weren't enough for me, that I kept forgetting that I'm a missionary to them and I was raising up women to love Jesus. My problem wasn't that I didn't want to have another baby or be a wife. It's that I was trying to do everything in my time and how I thought it should be. I was leaving God completely out of it. He was calling me to be a wife and mom and be content knowing that I was where God wanted me to be. We live in a world that puts high value on degrees on the wall, stamps on a passport, lots of money in your account, and I had none of that. I wasn't putting much value in the role God had in me. On April 23rd, Miss Ella Faith was born. She was so beautiful, and her sister's twin. I remember thinking, why can't I just be content with this? I was feeling pretty down after I had Ella, just getting used to baby plus four other girls and just life in general. I wanted time with Jesus to hear from him. I could feel the darkness of wanting to run away and leaving this life behind creeping up. In perfect timing, my dear sister invited me to a legacy conference at movie, and I was so excited because I was missing some good time hearing from his word. Well, the first classes I took were duds. I was disappointed to say the least. I wanted more out of it. The next day, I took a class called There's No Place Like Home. The speaker shared her struggles with being a wife and a mom. I didn't feel alone in the struggle as, as she shared her heart. There were two things that smacked me dead in the face. One, am I talking more than praying? Boy, that was true. I was just venting and talking to my friends. I wasn't talking to God about my feelings or praying for my husband and my kids. I wasn't fully seeking him to find joy in loving and caring for my family. And two, 
home is where we are protected. The heart, the heart goes first and the feet next. If your heart isn't at home, you don't know what can happen next. I was leaving the door open for Satan to, <laughs> to wreak havoc in my own home. I was at the forefront of a war and choosing to complain and not be content. I was sleeping on the job. Satan wants my family and would love to destroy it. It's like he opened my it's like God opened my eyes to see that I that I was doing his work in my home. I can't let my guard down and that I do important and meaningful things when it's bringing him glory. There was a freedom that day in a class that I didn't even pick. There was a sense of joy and contentment that filled my heart. What I've learned most is that I'm not perfect and I will mess up. When I fear those dark days coming and it's difficult to love, care, and die to self for my family, and some days I even asked if I could drop them all off at the fire station. When I'm in the trenches for my family, he reminds me of his grace and where he took me from. That I'm not alone, and yes, I'm a messy masterpiece, but his masterpiece. We named our fifth daughter Elephate because it means complete trust. That's what I'm doing, trusting and knowing that God knows far better than I ever will. I leave you with one of my favorite quotes by John Piper. Whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting Bible. Sarah said something in her testimony that, uh, that I want to start with. She said that she was doing things in hopes to make it the way that she thought it should be. That's the question of every Christian, right? What should the Christian life be? What should it be? Right? We often come to Christ, come to the cross, confess our sins, and then ask ourselves, now what? There's a now what moment for all of us at every point of the Christian walk. Not just at that first one when we come to the Lord and confess our sins, but then later. For those of you that are now husbands, when God says in His Word, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you look at that and say, now what? For those of you that are now parents and God says that you are to instruct them in the ways of the Lord, you look at that and say, now what? For those of you who are dealing with anxiety about whether or not you belong to the people of God, whether or not you really fit in with those around you, you look at God's Word when He says that He knows you and He has set you free. And you look at your own life and say, Now what? What does this all mean? How does this all play out? How am I really free? The Galatians were struggling with that very question. And we've spent weeks on end this fall looking at that statement. If you look at the front of your bulletin, it says what? Free. Say it again. Free. Indeed. We've been looking at it over and over and over as God's word says that we are free. The Galatians wondered two questions that motivated this letter. The question, who belongs to the free people? Who makes up the people of God? Last week, as Kerwin preached his sermon, he titled it, uh, Finding Our Birth Parents. 
we looked at the end of chapter 4 as Paul tells the Galatians, you are a part of Abraham's family. You are a part of the free ones. But that question is just the springboard to the second. Because the reality is, if I really do belong to the people of God, then now what? How am I supposed to live as a part of that people? How am I supposed to live as part of the free ones? As part of the free house? If I am a part of that community, what am I supposed to do? It looks like scripture isn't always clear. And the Galatians seem to have been wrestling with that too. They wrestled with whether or not they belonged and then came some false teachers. Some uh, different translators call them agitators. Guys who would say, yeah, you only belong to the people of God if you act this way, if you do this thing. They answered both questions. You belong to the people of God if, and this is what you do. So Paul addresses that with this letter. And over the first three or four chapters, he's been talking about that first question. Who belongs to the people of God? But now he's going to transition. Now he's going to look to push to that next part, the springboard into it. And our passage today is that hinge. That hinge that swings from one side to the next. From the answer, yes, you are a part of the people of God, Galatians good news, yes, you are a part of the free, those that are free indeed, those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and now belong to Him. But now let's look at that next piece, the piece that everyone is wondering about, that now what? That how we're supposed to live question. What does it mean to live in freedom? If you haven't turned already, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, where we'll be reading the first 15 verses looking to see if we can answer that question. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. And it reads, 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, Say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. But you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. You are not consumed by one another. Last week, as Kerwin preached his message, he ended on the first verse of this chapter. Well, we're going to start back at that verse. Because it's the pin that holds the hinge together. It's sort of the key that swings it from one to the next. Paul says in the first sentence, For freedom Christ has set you free. What exactly does that mean? For freedom Christ has set us free. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, There's an opening assertion that has a bit of irony at the start of this passage. But one way that it can be put is this. Christ has set us free. Don't you realize that it is freedom, not slavery, that bring, being free leads to? Freedom leads to freedom. But doesn't that seem confusing? Freedom leads to freedom. It doesn't answer the question, how does freedom play itself out? How do I live free? Freedom leads to freedom. What in the world is that all about? Paul says, Christ brought freedom to you so that you can live in freedom. And then he says in the second part of that verse, two actions. Stand firm and don't let yourselves fall or submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm and don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, some translations say. Those two actions set up what Paul is about to say. Because he's about to explain this whole freedom for freedom thing. He's about to lay it out. And those two actions lay out the first way that this plays out. That is that freedom never returns to slavery. Freedom never goes back to the way it used to be. For those that have come to Christ, we all have a testimony. And some of us were born and raised in the church, and we know that we have followed all the rules, did everything right, and still somehow felt distant from God. For a long time, that was me. I did everything I thought was right. People knew me as the good kid, the one who would, would end up doing something, the one who would go far in places. But as much as all the hype came, I didn't feel any better about my stance with God. I can tell you that every Sunday from the ages of uh, 12 to 13, every Sunday that there was an altar call or prayer counselors or someone here at the front of the church, you could bet that I was up there with them crying my eyes out. Because I never felt adequate. I never felt right with God. Some of us had that testimony. We grew up following the rules, trying to make it to God. And some of us come from a different background. We didn't know anything about God, Jesus, or any of this stuff here. We didn't get it. We didn't live in that culture. And we came to the Lord later in life. After facing different issues, problems, family struggles. After sin had its grip on us, we couldn't handle it anymore. We came to Christ, for some of us, out of circumstance, need. All the other options or things that we tried to fix our own lives didn't work. So we came to Christ out of need. Regardless of both testimonies, the reality is we both came to Christ. We both came to that moment of understanding that it is His actions that have saved us. But I love what, they, what a musician says about this, this moment. 
We all come to Christ confessing sin, but yet we walk around the church expecting everyone to live in faultlessness. We, we sort of expect life to change and there to be a set of rules or rubric for how we're supposed to live this out later. We get, we get lost in that. And so Paul says, freedom never returns to slavery. It never goes back to that way. It never goes back to rule following. It never goes back to trying every option and every solution. It never goes back to either of those two. Real freedom stands firm. Real freedom stands firm. That action is militant in its language. I think of my dad who played football. He was going to play football in college. I remember as a kid... He would always tell us, you know, the glory days, his, his high school football days, and he would joke with us. Now, my dad, I may be small, but my dad is not, guys. He would tell us, stand tall, and we'd have about half a second before a big push was coming. Stand tall. And we'd have to be ready for that drill. He'd push or pull us. That's the kind of language that's being used here, stand firm. You don't have much time. Stand firm. This is militant. Be ready now, on the spot. Stand firm. Verse 2, Paul says, look. Look with me. Now, here's what I want you to understand. There are two ways to understand what Paul is saying here. Either Paul is saying, look with authority. He's saying, look, I, Paul, the apostle, the one called by God, the one who witnessed Jesus, the one who's called to the Gentiles. Look, me. Or, he's saying, look, the one you know, the one who brought you the message, the one that you helped when he was blind, sick, and weak. Remember in Galatians chapter 4, two weeks ago when we preached, where I said that when Paul is talking to the Galatians, he reminds them of their testimony. Part of their testimony was that Paul came to them when he so it could be that Paul is asserting his authority over them. He's saying, look, listen to me. Or it could be that he's reminding them of the relationship he has with them. Look, it's me, Paul. You know me well. Regardless, Paul addresses them personally. He says, look, verse 2, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Two weeks ago I brought up circumcision and asked the question, what would bring a man to do something so extreme? But this is the first time that that comes up in the, in the letter of Galatians. Up to this point, Paul has been addressing the issue of obeying the law. And now he brings up what the Galatians are really considering doing the extreme final step to it. In chapter 4, you remember, Paul tells them that they've been obeying days, seasons, months, celebrations of the Jewish tradition. These Gentile Christians were trying to, to figure out what it meant to be free by looking a kind of way, by celebrating certain festivals, by doing certain things, to look the part. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to look the part? Look like a Christian, talk like a Christian, act like a Christian? I know I have. 
I know many others have too. Try to look the part. And up to that point, the Galatian Christians were trying to look the part, but now they were taking a more extreme step. Circumcision, while a physical act, it represents the start of something much bigger. Circumcision was what marked Jewish people as the people of God that had to live by a covenant law. Circumcision marked the start of that. By accepting circumcision, the Galatian Christians were committing to then following all that the law had to do. All had the law that the law had commanded. And in these first two verses, Paul's saying, if you do that, if you do that, verse 2, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you do that, verse 3, you have to obey the whole law. I love how the NIV puts verse 2. If you have an NIV Bible, you see it that it says, if you submit to circumcision, and this is the second part, Christ is of no value to you. He's of no profit, no gain. In some sense, you've rendered his sacrifice useless. And look at verse 3. You've rendered Christ's sacrifice useless, but you've made the law powerful in your life. Because now you have to obey it all. You see, once Christ came, once he was born, lived on this earth, obeyed the law died on that cross once he fulfilled all that God had promised he would do for his people going back to the law would mean having to do it all to rely on your own effort and that's hopeless the only thing that that promises is anxiety Trying to look the part only promises anxiety. Trying to take extreme steps to make sure that you're a part of the people only brings hopelessness. The law is only good to point out our sin. And the minute that we set it up as the way that we're going to live our lives is the minute we become very apparent that it is impossible to please God of our own strength. We just can't. If you submit to circumcision, you are making the law all power in your life. You're only going to bring anxiety to your life. That was me, Sunday in, Sunday out, as a young Christian. Every Sunday coming up here, bawling my eyes out, saying, God, I need you. I did that because I had set up rules. I said, Lord, your word says that I won't uh, lie. I lied this week. Definitely lied this week. So I would come up before God to ask him to save me. Because I had broken his rules. There's a deep felt anxiety in that. Verse 4 sums it all up. Verse 4 sums it all up. He says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. There's some concerns there, right? Severed from Christ, cut off from Jesus. 
how could that be? Can, can a real Christian really be severed from Christ? Can we be ensnared again? We've fallen away from grace. Grace. That undeserved gift that God has given us. And that gift that says, you are my child, my son, my daughter. Part of the free ones. Paul is saying, if you submit to the law, you are cutting yourself out from that gift. In chapter 4, verse 17, take a look at that. The agitators, it says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. See, that was the message of the agitators, but it looks like it didn't take much uh, marketing, if you will, for the agitators' message to get across to the Galatian Christians. They were looking desperately for an explanation as to how they should live in freedom, what it meant to be a part of the people of God. The agitators seemed to provide what Paul did not, a rubric. And they were more than willing to follow a rubric. That's the way that they've always understood the world. To remind you of a phrase, that's the elementary principles of this world. It's the basics of life in, on this earth. I follow a set of rules. I earn this. I follow a set of guidelines. I get this. But that's not it. It doesn't really solve our problem, does it? It doesn't really answer the question, how do free people live? Because what it does is it creates anxiety and slavery all over again. But real freedom never returns to slavery. So can a real Christian be severed from Christ? Paul says no. Why? Verse 5, 4. In other words, because through the Spirit, by faith. Say this next word with me. We. Come on, we'll say that together. For through the Spirit, by faith, we, ourselves, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul has told the Galatian Christians to stand firm. And now in verse 5 and 6 he says what they should stand firm in. He gives them a kind of confession and he includes them in it. Good news. Look around for a second. Look at those people that are around you. This is our confession. For we ourselves, through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This is our confession. This is what he calls them to stand firm in. How do the free people live out their freedom? By standing firm on the truth. By standing firm on the you see, every house has its rules, and every set of rules have their value. I'll give you an example. When my mom, my mom makes it into every one of my sermons. What's wrong with me? Whenever I go home, and I take my mom out to eat, and we try a different restaurant, and I order something really peculiar, she always says to me, you, 
you shouldn't order that. And I ask why. And the, qu- the answer is always the same. Porque tú eres boricua. Y los boricua no comen eso. Translation. Because you're Puerto Rican and Puerto Ricans don't eat that. When I go home and I wear a nice dress shirt and, you know, nice clothes to the Christmas party and everyone shows up in their jeans with their polos, my mom looks at me and she goes, go change. Why? Porque tú eres boricua. Y los boricuas no se ponen eso. Translation, because you're Puerto Rican and Puerto Ricans don't wear that at the Christmas party. What's wrong with you? There's a value there that establishes the rules. She values that identity. You are a Puerto Rican, and Puerto Ricans live a kind of way. And because of that value, you live a kind of way. There are rules. Every house has its rules, and every set of rules has its values. In this first part, verses 2 to 6, Paul is saying, you have a choice here. If you live by the values of the law and accept circumcision, then Christ has no value. But, if you stand firm in your confession that we ourselves, through the Spirit, by faith, eagerly await being made right with God, if you do that, then circumcision or uncircumcision, those have no value because then you've put value in the truth. You've stood firm in the truth. That's how freedom plays itself out. By standing firm, by never returning back to slavery. Freedom never returns to slavery because it it turns on the truth. It stands on the truth. Look at the truth message here. This is the gospel in two verses. For through the Spirit, by faith. Those that are, if you look at verse 6, the second and third word. Those that are in Christ. From the promised gift of the Spirit. So, through the Spirit, by faith. Those that have faith, those that have trusted the promise, are part of the people that are in Christ. Those people have faith. They believe. Believe what? They're eagerly waiting for something that is sure. Hope of righteousness. Not hope like, I hope tomorrow doesn't rain. Hope that is certain. Hope of righteousness. A hope that says, we will be made right with God. God is working this out through the Spirit. By my belief that He is working this out, He will make me right with Him. There's no rules to be obeyed. There's truth to stand on. Real freedom never returns to slavery because it stands firm on the truth. But then there's the second action. If you remember back to verse 1, he says, And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Some translations say, Don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Here we get to the next part of this, the next part of this action that lays this out, that our freedom means never returning to slavery. And Paul almost changes subjects with a metaphor. He goes from standing firm to saying, you were running well. 
Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Some translations have it. Who cut into you? For those of you that have an early morning commute, think of it this way. Think of that biker who just turned the corner and surprised you. And he's like, oh, I'm going to run him over. Who cut into you? For those of you that bike in the morning, think of that car that decides to turn the corner without looking at you. It plays both ways. Who cut into you? Who cut into you and persuaded you to stop obeying the truth? Why would you put that burden on again? In second action, don't let yourself be burdened again. Look what Paul says. Verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. This message, message isn't from God. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's a, an idiom, a saying, a proverb. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And you, you let a little bit of this in, it messes up everything. It messes up everything. So don't submit yourself. Don't let yourself be burdened. Don't take on this weight. It is going to cut into your race, and you are running well. Remember the value. Stand firm in the value. Stand firm on that rock, and then run. Run well. But be careful not to listen to false messages. Christians, Good News Bible Church, men and women of God, there is constant messaging in this world. Messages of the old way, of the old life, that say, no, you have to earn this. You have to do this. I said it two weeks ago, and I'll say it again. And this is rather bold, but I mean it. Even when you walk into Christian bookstores today, there are whole aisles and sections of this doing. And I don't want to get into a theological debate about whether or not signed gifts exist or not. But every form of theology has this apparent doing when it's taken to an extreme. But I grew up charismatic church. And I'll share my testimony as part of this. When I was in college, my first year of college, I had a young girl of the youth group ask me a question while we were in youth group. And she said that she wasn't experiencing the same things that those others in the youth group were experiencing certain gifts. And I don't want to make an issue out of the gifts themselves, but I want to make an issue of her question. She said, am I not a part of the people? That message is constantly sent. It's not just in that denomination or that theological band. We do it too here. We do it here too. We, we make issues of things. Say, no, 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 you have to do this, believe this, act this way. Otherwise, you're not really a part of the free people. And even a little bit of that cuts into the race. Even a little bit of that knocks up the foundation, severs its value. And that causes anxiety and hopelessness, but Paul very caring for the Galatian church. Because if you look at verse 10, he says, I have confidence, confidence, assurance, in the 
Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And just like when there was a sense of doubt for a second when he says, if you believe, or if you set yourself up with circumcision, you are severed from Christ. Now for those that are running the race and have tripped up and feel the need, oh my goodness, I need to fix this. Paul says, no, 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 no. I have confidence. In the Lord, in Christ, in union with Him, through the Spirit, you'll have the same mindset and you will run this race well. But it looks like the agitators, knowing that their message is going to be falling apart soon enough, they must have made a claim about Paul. They must have said that Paul was preaching circumcision too because Paul seems to change, almost change subjects. At least that's what it looks like. Verse 11, it says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. It seems like he's changing subjects, but he's not. The agitators try to say that Paul is preaching the same message, do these things, believe these things. Paul's saying, if that's true, then why are they persecuting me? Clearly, I'm not preaching the same thing. Clearly, I'm preaching freedom. And that removes the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross is not to Jewish people alone. The offense of the cross is that it removes us from the picture. It's offensive to everyone because it says, you don't have to do anything anymore because you can't earn this even if you try. That's the offense of the cross. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision, verse 6, also doesn't matter. You can't earn your way into this and you can't earn your way out of it. It's through the Spirit that God is going to finish this race. He's going to fill you with His power and get you to the end. Real freedom never returns to slavery because it stands firm. Real freedom never returns to slavery because it doesn't take on the yoke of slavery again. It recognizes the truth and keeps running. The truth that it is God who is doing this. It is the work of God who saved, and it is the work of God that will finish this act of saving me, this act of making me right. Real freedom never returns to slavery. But it also doesn't turn to chaos either. Real freedom doesn't turn to slavery, but it also doesn't turn to autonomy. Real freedom doesn't make you your rule set. It's rooted in a value system that makes you a part of a people. You're not autonomous anymore. You belong to someone. And you belong to those that are his. In verse 13 to 15, Paul lays this out. He says, For you were called freedom, reminding us of verse 1. It says, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Real freedom never turns to slavery, but it also doesn't turn to chaos. When I graduated from Moody, I moved into an apartment with two other guys, and we, the three of us, felt the freedom of not living under the burdens of Moody's rules. Please ignore my smile as I say that. 
But because we felt the relief of that freedom, we also didn't talk about how we would live with one another. We just lived autonomous from one another. We just did our own thing, however we thought we should do it. Now imagine just two months of that. Me doing my thing, them doing their thing. Three months, four months, five, six, seven, eight months of that. Before finally, in frustration, the three of us said, no, 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 we got to sit down and talk about this. Every house has its rules and every set of rules have its values. We've talked about the value system already. But there are also rules. Freedom still has its rules. We're not autonomous. We belong to one another. That's part of the house of God. It's part of the family. And because we are part of the family, we have to live a kind of way. The hinge has swung all the way over. We've gone from talking about what it means to be a part of the people of God to how the people of God should live together. We are to serve one another, love, love one another. Here's the reality of that good news. To serve and love one another, we have, we have to be invested in each other's lives. We have to allow that investment. Sometimes we look at that freedom and it means I have to figure out my Christian walk myself. No. That's very unbiblical. We are to serve one another, but we also have to let people in. Real freedom isn't autonomy. You belong to the, the church family, so live like that. Share your burdens with them. Confess your errors and mistakes to one another. And then support one another in that sanctifying work that will happen through the Spirit, by faith, in love. Love is the act. Love is what completes and fulfills the law. There are rules, yes. But those rules... Those rules can be achieved or obeyed because of the work of the Spirit in us. Christ has started something altogether new. And when we are rooted in that reality, in that new world, that says that it is the work of Christ's Spirit in us that will do this, we will love one another. And we'll do that rightly. That's the call. We are free from slavery, but we aren't free into chaos. To live however which way we want to we live. We are to love and serve one another. But that requires confession. That requires prayer for one another. That requires seeking each other out. Salvation and church life aren't two separate issues. In theology, there's a fancy word for church. Ecclesiology, right? It's the study of the church. Salvation, the study of salvation and the study of ecclesiology are one and the same. Salvation puts you in community with someone. To live out your salvation, to wrestle through the things and issues that you deal with, you do it with people, not alone. It requires your confession, your openness, your transparency. It requires being a part of this people that is around you. It requires telling them when you're struggling. That's something that I struggle with, telling people that I'm struggling that is the required call of the gospel. That we live rooted in the truth, running this race together. Together. 
salvation and church life are not two separate things. They happen in unison. And theology and practice are also not two separate things. As we wrestle out our walk of faith, as we look at those commands of Scripture, as God says, love your wife as Christ loved the church, instruct your children in the ways of the Lord, serve one another using your gifts and talents. As we look at those commands in Scripture and we ask ourselves how we're supposed to do them, we need to remember that step one is remembering what is true. That's how this passage starts. A Paul laying out what is true, what has value. Everything we do, we do because of the gospel. Take a moment this week and think through what you're doing love your wife, as you serve and love your husband. Write down the message of the gospel. Write down verses 5 and 6. Put them somewhere where you can remember them. And as you love and serve one another, remember that it starts with thinking and believing the truth. The truth that that person has the grace of God working in their lives. That that person has the Spirit working in them. And that you do as well. Because real freedom never turns to slavery. It never turns to chaos. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that your spirit is indeed working. That your spirit isn't a, a thing, but a he, Lord. It's a person moving in and through us, working on our hearts, Lord making sure that we can do the very things that you have called us to. This life is not easy, Lord. This Christian walk comes with many questions. But we thank you, Lord, that when we look at the, when we look at the steps ahead, when we ask now what, we know that your spirit is enabling us and that you are bringing this work to completion. We thank you for that. We ask now, Lord, that your spirit would move us into this next week, that your spirit would guide us into these next months, that we would keep the gospel in mind as we love and serve one another. Help us to do the very thing you've asked of us. We can't do it without you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And ask the prayer counselors to come forward.